Good morning. In the early hours of Monday, 14 migrants, nine men, three women and two girls were found in a refrigerated lorry at Rosslare Europort. The migrants had been forced to cut a hole in the container as they struggled to breathe. On Morning Ireland, Dirk Harthy, a local independent councillor in Wexford and operations resource manager with the National Ambulance Service, joined Mary. I think it was around one o'clock on Monday morning, a 9-9 call was made to the United Kingdom Coast Guard from uh, an occupant of a refrigerated trailer on board a ship inbound for Rosslair Europort. So that was subsequently patched uh, across to the uh, emergency services in Ireland and there was a multi-agency response deployed to Rosslair Europort. I suppose to bring some context to that, there was a large number of ambulances, um, Garda Shikhan interpreters and indeed the staff of Rosslair Europort. And when the, the ship docked, uh, they were uh, assessed and, and cared for uh, at scene and uh, subsequently transferred into a processing centre in uh, in Dublin. Um, it seems to be uh, quite a, a challenging and very dangerous um, trip for, for anyone to make, but I believe this they had difficulty breathing within the refrigerated trailer and may have had to break a hole inside of it to access some air from within the, the ship itself. Thankfully, we don't have an outcome similar to what we had in the early 2000s, but when a container came into Rosslare and there was a number of deceased people in it and trying a business park. So that was averted the other night, but I suppose it brings it to the context of people, you know, coming from possibly war-torn countries, uh, trying to get to, I suppose, a better life. But many of these people, once they're put into these containers or indeed fridges, ex- their expectation is that they're going to the United Kingdom. But that was a 30-hour journey across uh, to Rosslare Europort mm-hmm. um, and could have been a very different outcome. Also in Rosslare, protests around plans to house asylum seekers in a hotel that had been earmarked for conversion into an old folks' home. Mary put this to the councillor. Are the protesters opposed to any use of that uh, former hotel uh, to house refugees or asylum seekers? They're they're opposed to the saturation of refugees in their village. There and, their, and the, the position that they have is that they have integrated over three hundred and fifty. They work in the area. They're involved in the community. They're involved in the different soccer clubs and mm-hmm. GA clubs, etc. And they've done their bit. And this is a problem across the country. And it's about the distribution of fairness, as I said earlier. Fairness. And that's what's. So, that's so what you're, opposed, you're opposed in Rosslare to Ukrainian refugees, to families, or to uh, asylum seekers in, in, in groups of men, are you? No, absolutely not. We're opposed to, to saturating a rural village of a population of 1,200 people with over 700 refugees, IPAS and Ukrainian. I understand that point, but that is, you you are opposed to any further groups coming in? We're opposed to any further numbers. Any uh, further numbers, all right. right. Um, And with Claire Leisure, Brendan Howland, Labour TD for Wexford. But what what I'm saying in general terms is we have to... um, completely adhere to our obligations internationally to provide accommodation. The world is changing. It's a very dangerous place now. Climate change is going to impact. And we're going to have migration. But it has to be done not on the basis, as I've said, I've spoken to Roderick O'Gorman several times, and he seems to just simply have an imperative wherever a bed is available. Wherever a bed is available, that's I'm going to take it, and that can't be the, the mechanism. I mean, we promise we've been promised. But when you have refugees service. sleeping on the street, th- th- there's not much else you can do. I mean, you have to take right. every bed available. 
well, the bottom line is that he's promised for some time to build uh, bespoke reception centres across the country. Uh, and that should be underway now. We haven't, uh, in the last two years it's been promised, we haven't had a sub turned on anyone as far as I'm aware. Um, and it can't be simply that uh, we can, um, you know, look at a community, whether it's Rossley or any place else, and every single bed, regardless of the consequences for the local economy, uh, for the normal functioning of a community, uh, for their ability to provide uh, other facilities, it, none of these things are relevant. We have to have um, more than that myopic focus on beds. Okay. And I absolutely understand uh, the pressures on, on Roderick Gorman. I, he has my enormous sympathy. And he will, from the Labour Party perspective, we support uh, his very strong measures of integration. Uh, I think he's improved things in terms of uh, providing better communications, but that that has to be done in a joined-up oh, way. Right. Otherwise, we alienate the, the incredible goodwill of communities that I know very well, like Rossler Harbour. All right, Brendan this week also saw more protests at proposals to house single male asylum seekers, one in Carlow and the other at Ballinrobe in County Mayo. On Monday's News at One, Theresa Mannion brought us these voices of protesters at Ballinrobe. John Nyland, you're a local man here in Ballinrobe. Why are you at this continuing protest? Because of, of the idea of putting 50 men into a 12-bedroom hotel built beside a crash. I'm not very happy with the situation. It's not fair. It's what? not fair on the kids. It's not fair on the people of Ballinrobe. It's not fair on the businesses of Ballinrobe. How long are you going to stay here? As long as it takes. It takes hours and hours and days. We, we wait around. I've been here since half six yesterday evening. I haven't gone home. So I'm not going to back down. You know. Do you have any sympathy for the people who are fleeing yes. war-torn countries? Yes, we do. And we have uh, sympathy for families from Ukraine, war-torn country. But we don't know where these people are coming from. But we've been told they're not from Ukraine. That is what annoys us. My name's Carla O'Connor. I'm a mother here living in Ballinrobe, a concerned mother. Um, the reason why we're here today, and we have been for the last three days, is because we were told on Friday evening, on Friday afternoon, that there was going to be 50 males placed into this building. There's been no consultation with the local people. With us, it was just sprung straight upon us. There's no resources as it is for the people that we've already taken on in the town and for the people that live in the town. I'm a law-abiding citizen. This is my first protest. Um, I'm a native of Ballinrobe, proud Ballinrobe woman, proud Mio woman, and I don't want my town to go down the pen. We don't have any facilities. For example, if there's a, a crime in our town, we should contact Claremore's Guard Station, which is a 30-minute drive. We've no cinema, we've no swimming pool. My old general hospital is 30 minutes away. And we just don't have the services for the people here. Never mind, put another extra 50. What are the 50 guys going to do? Because there's no facilities for them. And then U-turns by the government, as the Department of Integration agreed to offer accommodation to families instead of single men. On Morning Ireland, Mary asked this question of Justice Minister Helen McEntee. What would you say this cold January morning to the hundreds of asylum seekers? They've come to this country seeking protection, which is their right, and they're sleeping rough on our streets. Their welcome has been a, a sleeping bag and a voucher. 
What I would say is that we are doing everything that we possibly can to try and provide accommodation for those who are seeking international protection, no matter who they are. Um, it is a challenge. I don't think we have ever shied away from the fact that this is a challenging situation. We've seen the number of international protection applicants increase two or threefold in two years alone. Uh, and so we have in many ways tried to respond, not just by providing a roof over their head, by making sure they have shelter, they have food, they have accommodation, but that we can process their applications as quickly as possible. Well, and Minister, so those who you could have had 70 of them on their way to or already being housed in Ballinrobe. You could have another 50 bound for Carlo this weekend and uh, that would be 70 and 50 120 uh, male asylum seekers who could have had accommodation in this country who are probably on the streets where are they now going to go that those decisions for Carlo and for Ballinrobe reversed by the government I wouldn't say that at all actually all of those um, spaces are being filled and we as a government and the Minister in particular has said very clearly that we need to prioritise women and families and that is exactly what we are doing here. This is a very fast moving environment and those of us who are working on it on a daily basis can say that it changes literally on a daily I, basis. I know but and this so has the women, the line. But this but is but what this is, is happening here. We are prioritising. from other ministers as well uh, that you know every and you know everyone needs accommodation but why then tell Jennifer Murnane O'Connor and the other representatives in Carlo Kilkenny on Tuesday that male asylum seekers were going to be housed in Carlo. Why claim and say to Ballinrobe representatives male asylum seekers were going to be housed there and then in the face of protest you reverse the decision? Again I wouldn't characterise it as that at well, all. How would you characterise it? I would say that it is government doing everything that we can to put a roof over the heads of everybody who seeks international protection. But we have been very clear that we must prioritise women and families. Justice Minister Helen McEntee. There are now over 500 international protection applicants without state-provided accommodation. On Drive Time, Sarah spoke to Nick Henderson, CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. There's been several incidents, uh, I'm sure you're aware of people protesting, specifically the arrival of single male asylum seekers in oh. their locality. And then we've seen alterations being made to those plans with the government agreeing not to house men, but actually women and families. What do you think of that? And if, if that continues, where do the single men go? Well, they, they, they currently aren't going anywhere because there are many of, of whom... Uh, and it's 500 in total, 516, it's probably increased by now, are without accommodation. So there are many of that number on the streets in Dublin in freezing weather, facing huge difficulties. And looking at the forecast for the next week, it's not going to get above five degrees and be freezing overnight. Um, some of the most, we've been doing this work for 30 years, I've been doing this work for 20 years. Some of the most vulnerable people we've met and do meet are young men. Um, people, those men will be fleeing persecution and harm. They may be victims indeed of harm here while they're here. Um, so I, I think we have to be really careful, and I would say this directly to communities, you know, you have a right to peaceful protest, you have a right to ask questions, to engage in deputies and your councillors, but also to be really careful of not being manipulated by okay. a very small number of people on the far right who mm. wish to, to perpetuate this trope. From Wednesday's drive time, back in a bit. Welcome back. Now, does it feel a little too early to be out in the garden? Yeah, it certainly does. But there are jobs to be done. Honest. You're saying it's a good time to clean and clear. 
Yeah, do all the things that every gardening book tells you you should do and that no sensible person ever really does. <laughs> like sharpen your tools, clean your potting shed, yeah. all that stuff. Right. Uh, yeah. But definitely, you know. You're not get, very get convincing yourself. on that. Mick. No, because <laughs> I, I, I never do it. So right. that's why I have a, a shed full of broken tools. Okay. Uh, but and we're taking advice from him. That is Michael Kelly from Grow Your Own GIY.ie. Disarmingly honest. But he does know his onions, if not his carrots. We'll get to that. First things first, get your seeds in a row and just listen to the savings. I usually spend about 80 euro a year, I would say, on seeds, which is... Um, 80 no, euro? About 80 euro. Right. And that, that would deliver around probably three or four grams worth of food over the year. But like, I'm a bit... Three or four thousand euro worth yeah, of food from 80 euro. Absolutely, yeah. Right. Um, now, look, I'm I'm a bit of an anorak about yes, these things. Yeah. But we, we worked out from a standard sort of three raised bed setup in a small urban garden. You can grow, easily grow five or six hundred euros worth of, of food. Yeah. Um, probably a 10, you know, 10 or 15 X kind of multiplier in terms of how much you spend on seed to how much food you get back. Wow, that is some saving. And do not forget the spuds and the accompanying terminology. Careful now. So you can also order seed potatoes at this year. So most people will will maybe have heard that you you, you generally sow uh, or plant your, your potatoes around Paddy's Day in March. Um, but now is a good time to order your seed potatoes. So we grow potatoes from last year's uh, potatoes, basically. So some of the potatoes that that were harvested, you keep them back for for sowing next year's crop. Um, so you buy your seed potatoes now, uh, and and then you do a, t- a thing called chitting, which you always have to be careful saying on radio. Yes, um, well, well done. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I got that nice. Um, and basically, and chitting what is, the, is what, what going? Yeah, you, you know the way a potato will sprout if you leave it down the back of the press yes. in the kitchen. You're you're trying to encourage that, so you basically lay the potatoes out in a flat in a in a shallow tray. Aye. And they start to sprout. And that means when you plant them in the ground in, in mid-March, they have a bit of a head, head start. Ah, they yeah, very good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're also like I... And do you, which variety of potato do you well, prefer? Um, so so the, the kind of main classifications are like early and main crops. So your early potatoes are the ones that we like eating, you know, kind of the end New of May potatoes, or June. Yeah. New potatoes, yeah. Um, and I like, uh, I like, you know, varieties like Orla and Colleen. There's there's lots of amazing varieties. Uh, then your main crop potatoes, things like Queens and and the more standard ones as well. Roosters, yeah. Um, but like the good the good thing is, I suppose, like like most things in the food chain now, a uh, huge amount of sort of con- consolidation, I suppose, of varieties. So so we eat you know, probably two, three varieties of potatoes now in Ireland and very little else. Whereas when you grow your own, you can kind of try lots of different, different varieties. All pretty doable, at least from the comfort of the couch. But watch out for carrots. Yes. And we are with Ray on this one. We did not think they would be the veg to give you trouble. Celeriac, mm, tomatoes, very needy. But carrots? I would have thought the carrots were the easiest to go. No, they're 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 kind of temperamental. So they 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 like a, you need a very fine soil to start because they're absolutely tiny seeds. How do I know if I have a fine soil or not? Well, like you, you, when you're preparing to sow carrots, the the soil would need to be raked really really well ah, so right. that you have a very fine kind uh-huh. of surface to sow them into. Mm. Um, they're tiny seeds, so basically, if you've got big clumps of soil, the carrot seeds will fall down 
could fall down in between two clumps of soil and end up way too deep. Um, right. So, so like really, really fine, almost snooker table fine. And they're nearly the only vegetable that you have to be that particular about how you, where, you know, what you sow them into. Right. Uh, they're also, um, if, if, if you think about it, you sow a carrot seed on the surface of the soil practically, and then it goes down into the soil uh, the root and it's that root that we're eating so if that if that root sort of comes across hard soil or uh stony soil stones in the soil it'll just stop and it just and gives up does it yeah more or less or it'll fall carrot <laughs> i know yeah up your game yeah. um, so it'll it'll or or it'll fork and you end up with a forked carrot which is oh, which right. is not as fun as it sounds so like yeah. i think um, crazy times Bagley Kelly from giy.ie on Wednesday's live line, John from Mayo rang in. He was annoyed with Irish water. The water he had been drinking was not fit to be drunk and the do not consume notifications were only on local radio. He'd missed it and had drunk two litres of the contaminated water and he needed to take a lot of pills washed down with water. And it was then that the call took a turn. I've a wonderful palliative care team looking after me or whatever. Okay. I'm in a very, very vulnerable position and... I'm uh, sorry to hear that. I, I, not at all, Joe. I was actually telling you, a researcher, I'm okay. in uh, top top form, great form. I'm a very lucky man. And why are you under palliative care? I, I'm in end-stage heart disease, Joe. So uh, I'll be honest, Joe, I'm... I'm very, very lucky, very blessed man and very grateful because if you think about it, I'm in a hospital bed they supplied in my own little room. Yeah. I have my TV as my gorgeous wife, Mary. Yeah. I've, so I'm able to, to die at home. Uh, my, my pain and what I would suffer during the night is, is just chest pain. Joe, could you imagine what people have to go through? Uh, mm. You know, some people have to suffer so much. Could you imagine being in, a, I don't know, a camp in Palestine and being unwell? Okay. It just, I, I sort of uh, reflected back over my life one day and I took out a pen and paper and I wrote a gratitude list. And Joe, there's mm-hmm. no way I could be, like I've had a great life and uh, I realise now all my blessings. <laughs> you know, I don't regret anything in the past, but it's only now I realise, gosh, I am so lucky. He's 64 and he was given a year to live back in November 2022. So he is beating the odds so far anyway. Now, the only frightening part is the nights when the pain is bad, you know, I would think, OK, is this it? Is this at this time? Okay. That's the only thing. And once, once that, what I do, Joe, is I get up, I make a nice cup of tea, um, I will knock on Netflix. I was saying to your researcher, uh, I wouldn't tend now to to face into something like a rerun of The Sopranos. I stick to miniseries. <laughs> it's, okay. it's safer. Oh, <laughs> I think it's, a, oh, it's, get, it's for the oh, best. Oh, I get you now. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, you're very, absolutely. You're very, you're very stoic. He was kind of incredible, and he talked about the love and support he got from his wife, Mary. Oh. And I worry so much about Mary because. Like, we're so much in love, Joe, that it hurts me that I'm sort of letting her down almost, if that makes sense. And Joe talked about his faith and also his faith in people. The beauty of it is I have been forewarned 
I I paid for my funeral. I did all of that. Um, I actually got embarrassed that I was still alive at Christmas because <laughs> a, a, a year oh had passed. And, you know, when lovely people come in and mm. visit and say, oh, God, sorry, John, about that. And you'd get a knock on the door and say, oh, jeez, Mary, tell them I'm gone, love. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, Joe, uh, you just, I don't know, when you're in this mm-hmm. situation, you just seem to see goodness in people. Oh, it's, it's startling. I mean, that's where I, I don't know who, who he or she is. I don't know who God is. But it's just so benevolent and beautiful. And I see it in people. What a man. John from Mayo on Liveline. Not all requiems are equal, as Sean noted when he spoke to conductor Mark Dooley. They were talking about Foray's Requiem. It has been performed in Galway as part of the Midwinter Festival. If you think of Mozart's Requiem, it's all big drama. It's almost like an opera. Similarly with Verdi's Requiem, you know, there's yes, there's a sacred aspect to it, but it's very dramatic stuff indeed. The Gabriel Fauré Requiem goes right against all of that big drama for a much more intimate style. Yes, indeed. I mean, he Fauré himself said that he, in this Requiem, he sees death as a as a as a joyful deliverance rather than a sort of a judgment on on a sinful life. And I think his focus is very much about the happiness that exists beyond the grave. Um, and you can sense that in, in this work. And, and that's why I think it's such a revolutionary piece, because no one had ever written a Requiem like that before. As you say yourself, the Mozart Requiem's full, you know, the, the, the dramatic mm. touches. And, and then, of course, later on, Verdi takes a greater extreme. So Foray offers a very, very different uh, interpretation. And although this is a requiem, Foray himself did not seem to be particularly religious. Did he bring a, a very strong religious belief with him to the composing of this piece? Uh, it's an interesting question. I don't think he was terribly religious. In fact, there are stories of him being caught. He was a church organist um, for most of his working life. But he, he wasn't terribly um, involved in the liturgy, shall we say, and he was caught nipping out, nipping out for a fag during the sermon and another occasion where he, he turned up to play on the Sunday morning still in his party outfit from, from the night before. So I don't, I, don't, I don't think he was terribly religious, but he did have a real sense of liturgy. Mm. And I think um, he said himself that, um, you know, after years of accompanying funerals on the organ, he wanted to do something different, but he wanted to do that within the liturgical context. And he always intended it as a liturgical piece. In fact, its first yeah. performance was within the liturgy, within an actual funeral. And, and indeed, it was performed at his own funeral, but he never saw it as a concert piece, I don't think. Yeah. So he had a, a real a real sensitivity to the liturgy, even if he might not have been the most devout believer, shall we say.
beautiful is that? For his requiem as heard on Arena. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Recording. Are we on the air? Can you hear me? On the air. Can you hear me now? Can you hear anything? How about that to catch your ear? That's from Thursday's Doc on One. It's titled Chris Brooks' Non-Rechargeable Battery. A celebration by David Zane Maravitz of the work of Brooks, the renowned Newfoundland documentary maker. And a reminder that radio can intrigue, excite and annoy in all kinds of ways. Today's programme is from contributor Chris Brooks in St John's, Newfoundland. His documentary is called Turn It Off. Music to drive you crazy. When I was growing up, my parents said this drove them crazy. Little Richard. Meanwhile, what my parents had on their record player drove me round the bend. And little Richard, the guy who used to drive my parents nuts? He doesn't sing about Miss Molly much anymore. He got religion, took a theology degree, and started singing gospel hymns. Now that drives me crazy. Chris Brooks' non-rechargeable battery from the Dock on One. Do your ears a favour and listen back. On Mooney Goes Wild, Moncorn McGann on Special Lady Bits, his book Fuckle Naman. Aina, who was on a lot of radio this week, gave him a grilling. You mentioned the fact that there are about 32 words for a man's penis and nothing for the female part. And it was never in the dictionaries. The dictionaries were written by men. There would be none of this filth in the dictionaries for about women's parts. None of that. And then, lo and behold, I'm looking now at Fuckle Naman. And you've managed to write a whole book about women's words that you didn't know anything about in the last one. How did you suddenly learn all these words for women's bits? Who told you? Who broke the omerta? <laughs> I know that Noel Nihonel, the great poet, she said that she believed that there was no words for Irish um, sexuality until she was married. And then she was invited into the back kitchen and she suddenly realised there was a whole hidden um, world of words that the women were, you know, privy to. But they didn't share unless unless you were married and unless you were sexually active and part of that world. So, again... I am, I'm, well, I'm not married and I'm not a woman. And so my little book, Fuckle the Man, is just, it's like a catalyst for other women to go and collect the huge amount of words. There is undoubtedly unlimited words out there, but I collected about 85 different words. Some words that I found in old dictionaries, some words, to my shame, that I went to the old fishermen. I had a project last two years ago called Sea Tamagotchi, where I was collecting sea words. 
from fishermen in Donegal and Mayo and Galway. So, so I went back to them and I said, look, do you have any words for women's bodies? And they gave me some beautiful ones. One word was for the clitoris, ribba untievroin. And ribba means a little tuft of hair or a tiny little blade of grass or like a, a stronger than a blade of grass, a blade of straw. Ribba is a little tuft or a straw. And um, untievroin means of the delusionment, of the derangement. So these little phrases that describe the woman's body but what I found most about them, about these words, so like blayan mana, blayan mana is a word for the vagina, obviously mana just of women and blayan. Blayan can mean a cove or a cave, but it can also mean um, two flat inlets of land with water in between them. And gawal is the same. Gawal means a, a fork of land or a kind of an estuary. And again, that's another word, gawal mana, for a vagina. It seems our ancestors used these words for the women's sexual organs based on the landscape around them. See, almost seeing the land as a woman's body. Ooh, always interesting on Mooney Goes Wild. On Tuesday's drive time, a throwback to the 90s, possibly controversial. John Gray, author of Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. You know, as a marriage counsellor, I see how men and women misinterpret each other quite often. One of the, so I point out those big places. Often men stop talking in order to cope with stress. They go to their cave. I call it the cave, where he's not intimate with his partner. He just needs his own time. We might say he needs his space. When he's getting his space, women often think he's mad at her because often women, many times women, stop talking when they're mad at their partner. So... Once women understand how men are different, then they don't get upset when he takes his alone time, as long as it's not too much. Mm-hmm. Vice versa, when women are feeling stressed or they've had a busy day, they often want to talk about what happened, talk about their feelings, talk about the children, talk about problems. And men think, okay, I should solve those problems. But many times she is quite capable of solving them on her own, but she's talking about them just to feel close. Hmm, but if that isn't working for you well, it is always good to talk and listen. So Gray offered this to Drive Time's many male listeners. I know a lot of listeners are are men and they have wives. Try this today, which is when you come home, talk to your wife for a brief few. How'd how'd your day go? Something like that. Did you go talk with the kids? Did you go to that doctor appointment? What was your job like today? You know, like you have some knowledge of her life. And then listen a little bit longer, three or four minutes longer, using these questions. Uh, Help me understand that better. Really, tell me more. What else? If you just take a few extra minutes more, then that gives a woman a chance for her hormones to shift from being the problem solver to an intimate, loving partner. And And so many women will complain, Mm -hmm. he just wants to solve the problem and fix it or he's not interested. Well, I'm telling men how to solve the real problem, which is if your wife's not feeling happy, usually she just needs to talk. Mm-mm-mm. John Gray on Drive Time. Meanwhile, at nine, Shay with some new terminology. Well, are you ready for buddy mooning? This is what we've heard this morning. Um, the hottest new trend in weddings is to go on honeymoon, not just with your spouse, but with your friends. So mere two-person honeymooners are now passé. So you want to kick off your marriage in the coolest way possible. It's all about buddy moons. Did you bring your friends on holiday with you? Did you or on your honeymoon? Were you supposed to spend romantic time around the pool? Like, what? What if your friends are with you? Are you able to spend that romantic time looking into each other's eyes? And did you, I don't know if you've ever done that thing with the champagne, where you put your arms around each other and your arm and you link in, and then you drink the glass of champagne linked 
Like that's that's like that's like cuddling when you're going to sleep. You can't. I just can't be doing that. Like a little cuddle. That's it. You're very nice, and I like you a lot. Now I'm going to turn over into my own space. I'm going to put my arm down between the duvet to make my own little castle. And good night now. And you know we do love each other, and we'll see each other again at some stage, maybe on a Saturday morning when the kids are asleep. But anyway, we'll see each other. Leaving that there, at the Golden Globes, Cork's Killian Murphy. He got Best Actor in a Drama for his role in Oppenheimer. This was his acceptance speech and very charming opening line. Oh boy, our first question, do I have lipstick all over my nose? Yes you do! Uh, yes you do, it. yes. <laughs> Because when his name was announced, his wife, Yvonne McGuinness, lent in to her husband to give him a congratulatory kiss and whatever was going on, because it must be mad, uh, she misdirected the kiss and got him on the nose instead of the lips. And Killian Murphy was also nominated for a Screen Actors Guild Award. Yep, getting the builders in, the mantelpiece, never going to hold. And another win for producers Element Pictures and their film Poor Things. Emma Stone took Best Actress and they won Best Film in a Comedy or Musical. And up on stage to collect their win, producer Ed Guiney. He joined Rachel on Morning Ireland. Look, we were really, really delighted. I mean, you know, it, it's an incredible... I mean, people are saying this is one of the, you know, best years for movies in a long time. And we were up against Barbie and, and that's an absolute juggernaut. So we were really thrilled to win and uh, like hoping for it, but not necessarily expecting it. And it just gives us a great boost to people coming, going to see the film. It just is such great, great publicity for, for it. Uh, so we're delighted. And then with Miriam, George Clooney, the A-lister. He has gone and directed The Boys in the Boat, the story of a rowing team, underdogs who compete at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. He was on the line with actor Callum Turner, which is lovely for Callum. But really, we're going to be cutting George. And I know, George, in other interviews you've mentioned water. You, of course, made the perfect storm. But what possessed you to go back to make a movie on water? I honestly stupidity you know you get to a certain age and you forget things and it'd been about 20 some years since I'd done Perfect Storm so I, I forgot what a misery working out you know would you do it again never <laughs> ask me You're 20, land, in 20 years I'll be like ah, let's go in the water I've never done that but you know it's hard because these boats are so much bigger than you think and you can't really get close to them because of the oars and so our camera boat had to stay behind them because if we get ahead of them our wake will capsize them so the way we shot it and trying to line them up and have eight boats moving the exact same time, it was really, uh, it was complicated. But, uh, you know, you just have to get it right once, which is basically what yeah. we did. And of course, you couldn't have him on without cranking up the Musha and Begara ometer. Irish Connection, Clooney, what are you talking about? Yeah, this about? is Come the on. Irish Connection. Come on. I went, to, I went and visited uh, uh, and I had, a, I had a really wonderful time. I saw a bunch of Cloonies. Which was fun to see. Relations? Or? Yeah, 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 okay. relations. I didn't know them, but it was a funny thing. I got there, and the minute you get there, you start to see all these people who look like all of your family, and you're like, oh my God, we're actually really related. You know, we all left during the famine, the potato famine, you know, our family did. So I think it was your great, great grandfather who left from Kilkenny? Kilkenny, yeah. Are you going to come back and trace even more your ancestry? Of course. I, are you, I had to leave because I had to take my liver out and wash it after, the, uh, after, the, <laughs> after my week in Ireland. It almost killed me. 
you know, but we had a great, I, I love it there. It was crazy. Think about this. I got there in February and it was 40 degrees and sunny the whole time I was there. Unbelievable. Oh, George, you bring the sunshine. With Ray, colour, or rather the fear of wearing colour and his resolution for the year ahead to embrace the purple, the teal, the cherry pink. You know, I don't have the confidence to wear bright colours. Yes, that's one of the reasons why people don't have this done because they think I'm going to send them out looking like a parrot, feeling like a parrot, looking yeah. like a children's TV presenter. Yes. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I was a children's has. TV presenter. I know you were. Yes. I know you were. Oh, is that the sound of backpedalling? That is Maria Macklin from the House of Colour. And she had her work cut out getting Ray out of his grey navy black prison. It's really about your skin undertone. So in your subcutaneous layer, your fatty layer, you have pigment. And that pigment is either blue-based or yellow-based. And if you surround yourself with a corresponding colour, either a blue-based or yellow-based colour, you will look fresher, brighter, younger. You will glow and the definition will come into your face when you do the opposite, you look older, sicker, tired, yes, like you need yes. a break. Right. So we look at your skin undertone first, then we take into account your hair and eyes, and we look at the clarity of your skin to see whether you should suit really saturated colours or something that's a bit more muted. And once you understand that, you have a quarter of the colours out there to choose from. You will look more harmonious, you'll look blended, your clothes will all go together. You'll be able to buy less. Yes. You're still laughing. No, 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 He was, but he said it was nerves. Maria was gentle with them, starting with some neutrals. Everybody has a set of neutral colours that will work brilliantly for them. And your neutral colours, typically blue, black, grey, navy, brown, all of the colours that we often go for first, the safe colours. Yes. Everybody's are different. But they keep you grounded, they give you gravitas, and they'll stop you from feeling like you're shouting, like your clothes yes. are shouting for you. Right. right. So everybody has those. So that's where we start. Baby steps, Ray. Baby steps. He was, though, wearing orange socks. We'll keep an eye on this. Meanwhile, with Claire, jeans, a minefield. Here's Aoife Dunnigan of Style Bob. Skinny jeans, gone or are they still permitted? Okay, skinny jeans. You've talked about Kate Moss brought them. We were all wearing skinny jeans. I still put skinny jeans into certain people. If you love your legs and you want to show them off, you put the, you pull on your skinny jeans. If you feel a little bit dated in them, you're only dated with what you wear it with. So if anyone's got their skinny jeans out there, two pieces of advice is try and wear them with a little bit of an oversized blazer. Also, crop the jean a little bit at the ankle because when we show a little bit of ankle, we create a crop, which is actually very flattering on the leg. The whole thing with jeans depends on the rise, the stretch, the shape of the leg. The rise is really important. So if your legs are short, for example, mine are shorter, even though I'm five foot seven, I wear a high rise jean to elongate the leg. Uh, look for a jean with, with um, let's say, the back of it a little bit, bit bigger or longer at the back because it gives you that um, support. If you have an hourglass figure, look for a cropped jean. Skinny jeans don't flatter everyone, Claire. We were forced into them years ago. I look back at pictures, I go, what was I thinking? But I live in my cropped boot cuts and they're very flattering. They're a great way to minimise the thighs. So the jeans are now out there to flatter as opposed to what we were bet in two years mm-hmm. ago. So then, the boot cut, we're back into it. Some of us might remember it from the first time around. 
Boot cut's actually very flattering, um, I suppose, if, if you're looking to minimise thighs as well, because that balance at the bottom can create can, sometimes a slimmer thigh. You can go back, but maybe not wear them all Shania Twain like. And the whole thing with boot cut, if you're going to go for it, make sure that they're full length because they can shorten the leg at that half mass. So you don't want to see an ankle with a, with a boot you, cut? I, I would do a cropped boot cut myself and make sure you show a little bit of your ankle bone. But if you're going fully boot cut, it should be down to the floor. And preferably when you're getting them taken up, that the jean just touches the floor before you get it taken okay, up. Gotcha. Writing it down all over this one. And finally, far be it from us to forget the gentleman. Men's jeans have become a little bit more um, tapered and what you'd find with a lot of men, especially if they're into sports, that their thighs could be a little bit chunkier. So they're better off to go for a tapered jean. Oh, not the, not the boot cut. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on your man. Some guys like a really, really slouchy jean, but you you look a little bit more put together and formal uh, if it's a tapered leg and a darker wash. Fabulous. Top tips for living. And that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.